You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years." And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this well-known story. And Father, we ask that you would be pleased to bless us as we look to this story and really ultimately father as we look to you and look to what you're doing what you've done and we look to the wonder of your mercy and grace and father we ask that lord you'd be pleased to uh, speak to us this morning uh, from your word that we would hear your lovely voice and we pray these things in jesus name amen and amen as many of you are aware this morning begins what the church has historically called the season of Advent, and the season of Advent covers the four Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas. And all the way up until last week, my intentions were to finish Romans 8. I was going to tweak the last two messages of Romans 8 to kind of take um, a, a, a flavor that would reflect the season that we're in. Uh, but last Sunday after worship, you know, when we finally got home, I 
um, I, I got the, the birth narratives out. I'd been reading them and, and uh, just started to reflect on, on Luke. And I got so excited. I thought, no, we're going to do it now. It's tis the season. Let's get into these birth narratives and let's, uh, let's do it now. Now, I had made the decision to look at Luke several weeks ago while I was looking ahead, trying to map out how the Romans 8 is going to, how the, ser- the, the, the sermons are going to take us um, uh, through Thanksgiving and trying to plot that out. Uh, that's actually more difficult than you realize. It, you, you think you're going to uh, preach on X amount of verses. You begin studying the verses and a subject begins to solidify. And the next thing you know, you're not taking the verses in the way that you originally thought you were going to. Um, all of that is to say, if you're wondering why I'm sharing all this with you, um, is um, um, uh, I was going to, uh, as I said, take uh, two weeks with Romans 8 and then two weeks with Luke 1. But instead, let's just get into Luke chapter 1 and look at these birth narratives, if you will. Uh, in terms of my approach this morning, I think one of the best ways to preach a story is really to tell the story. Uh, does that sound simple enough? I mean, I think the best way to preach a story is there's there's more than one way to preach a story, but I, I shouldn't say the best way. I guess I should say one way is to is to tell the story. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of go through this story, tell the story, and kind of offer some explanation here and there uh, as we go along. And then we'll put it all together in the end. Does that sound reasonable enough? Um, so if you look with me to verse 5, you know, these words that we sometimes will, will kind of go right past, uh, they're, they're incredibly important. Um, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, that little phrase right there actually is incredibly important. Uh, what is Luke doing there? He, he's placing this story in a context. Um, he's informing us that the story that we're about to read has taken place in a particular time. It's, it's taking place, in, it's happening in a particular time, it's happening in a particular place. In other words, this isn't one of those uh, once upon a time in a far, far away land kind of stories. Uh, it's not mythology. And um, it, it's, it's, Luke is reporting here on real historical events. And I say that, that this is very important because um, there's been a, you know, there's, there's been quite an assault against uh, these stories, um, largely coming from liberal theology, uh, to kind of desupernaturalize all of this, um, uh, to desupernaturalize um, the birth narratives, and we must not allow that to happen. Luke is reporting on real history uh, that is taking place now about Herod. I mean, Herod. He, you know, he's Herod's just downright a monster, isn't he? Um, some of you who are familiar with Herod. He's a monster. I mean, he was a puppet king for Rome. He reigned from, I think, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And um, he was such an insecure political leader that if he felt threatened by anyone, he would murder them. And this even included members of his immediate family, his wife and children. And, uh, you know, the famous story we have in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 2, you know, the wise men come from the east and 
they come into they come into town inquiring, you know, where can we find he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and we've come to worship him. And that word gets to Herod, and Herod does everything he can to try to locate uh, Jesus. And when all attempts fail, you know the story. What does he do? He orders the slaughter of all male children two years and younger in the Bethlehem region. Now, what kind of absolute monster, you know? Um, sometimes he's referred to as Herod the Great because of his building accomplishments. I mean, he did restore the Jewish temple to a magnificent level, uh, but he also built pagan temples and uh, things of that sort. And, um, you know, when we think we have problems today on the political landscape, we take a look at history and <laughs> things aren't quite so bad. <laughs> They're just really not so bad. I don't say that to, to speak, to, to make light of anything that's going on today, but it has not reached, thank, thank God, it's not reached this kind of proportion. Um, but at any rate, our story takes place in the days of Herod the monster. Um, uh, it's a particular historical place and a particular historical time period. And if we continue in verse 5, <clears throat> we see that in the days of Herod, there's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Obijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6 tells us they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this is noteworthy for more reasons than we have time to cover this morning. But um, uh, let, let, me, let me speak to this word blameless, um, because I think it's important that we speak to that. Again, I'm being selective as I go down through here. There's a lot here. Uh, but the word blameless, it's important that we understand it does not imply perfection. It doesn't imply perfection. Um, you know, as we'll see in a few minutes, you know, Zechariah is not perfect. But that having been said, uh, there's not a whole lot of characters in the Bible who are referred to as blameless, are there? If you do a survey, I mean, Noah is actually referred to as blameless. We know he wasn't perfect. If you know the story of the life of Noah, as he's recorded in Scripture, uh, he wasn't perfect, but when the Bible speaks of a person as blameless, what if it doesn't mean perfection, what does it mean? Well, it means that these individuals were exceptionally pious before God. Uh, exceptionally pious people. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were exceptionally pious. They were an exceptional couple uh, of faith before God. That is what Luke is telling us. And verse 7 introduces us to an issue that really largely escapes us today. But if we had lived in that time and that place, I wouldn't, there'd be no need to comment on verse 7. There'd be no need to comment on what Luke says there. He says that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, we live in a time where having children is often put off. It's, it's put away or uh, in, in some cases uh, it's avoided. Um, but this isn't the ancient context. I mean, in the ancient context, to be childless was one of the absolute worst things that could happen to you, uh, especially ladies. I mean, in, in this context, for a woman to be childish, childless, not childish, childless, was um, a terrible reproach, a terrible reproach, so much so that people would often whisper, you know, uh, this person must have some kind of dark 
secret in the closet. Uh, because why else would God do such a terrible thing uh, to her to render her uh, barren, to render her uh, childless? Um, you know, you can almost hear people whispering, oh, they say Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, they say that they're so holy, but there's got to be something going on. They're not getting away with anything before God. He sees all things, you know. Why else would Elizabeth be without child? You know, you can hear this kind of whispering and this kind of thing going on. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why Luke has given us so much detail about Zechariah and Elizabeth's piety. Uh, I, I think that's got to be one of the reasons. Now, if you look down to verse 8 with me, verses 8 and 9, we're told that while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Uh, at this time, the priesthood consisted of thousands and thousands of priests. And so much so that they were divided into 24 divisions. That's what Luke meant by as was their custom when he speaks about the priestly custom. Uh, these priests are divided into about 24 divisions and each division would serve the temple two weeks of the year, uh, except for those weeks when a major feast was taking place. Then all of the divisions would be called in to serve. And you'll know from reading the Old Testament that incense is offered in the temple twice a day, in the morning and the evening. And now you have a zillion priests and you really don't have a whole lot of tasks. So in order to choose uh, which priest would be called to have the wonderful privilege of going into the holy place and offering incense and prayer, uh, they, they didn't have elections they they weren't nominated by peers but they were chosen by casting lots and you read the old testament you'll you'll find that and even in the beginning of the new testament you'll find this practice of casting lots where they would take stones or small sticks and they would throw them on the on the floor or on the ground and somehow they discerned from that um they would discern um some type of meaning from that. I don't think we really know exactly how that discernment process took place. But what is really clear is that it was believed that the Lord would do the choosing. And of course, uh, uh, you know, Zechariah is chosen by lot. And, um, you know, as a priest who's chosen by lot, his duty is to go into the temple, offer incense, and then pray for the people of God. And while he would do this, while the priest would go in, offer his incense and uh, pray, uh, verse 10 tells us the people would, would be outside of the temple and they would be joining in prayer as well. So the whole covenant community is gathered to, uh, to offer these prayers. And uh, we're told in um, verse 11 that while Zechariah is serving in the holy place, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And now when Zechariah sees him, what happens? You know, Zechariah becomes terrified, doesn't he? And this is the common response that we find when, you know, folks come into the presence of God's glory. Now, someone might say, well, you know, um, Zechariah is not coming in the presence of God here. He's coming into the presence of a created being. 
Uh, yes, but he's coming into the presence of a sinless being who stands in the immediate presence of God and undoubtedly is reflecting the glory of God in a magnificent way. And it is the glory of God that uh, it absolutely terrifies uh, Zechariah. Why? Because God's holiness does something to us, doesn't it? God's holiness reminds us of our imperfections. I mean, as long as we're busy comparing ourselves to each other, we can shine up, at least in our mind, we think we can shine up quite well. But once we're compared to a perfect standard, well, then we come apart at the seams, don't we? And, and mind you, Zechariah has already been, he's a, he's a holy man. Uh, the scriptures refer to him uh, as a man who is blameless. And he sees, he sees um, Gabriel and he is terrified. Now, the beauty of God's mercy is immediate. The beauty of God's mercy is just immediate. How do I, how do, why do I say that? Look at verse 13. Look at what Gabriel says to Zechariah. He says, don't be afraid. See the wonderful hand of God's mercy. He doesn't leave him terrified and in horror. Uh, he comforts him. And he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call him John. Now, there are a couple of things here. First, Gabriel tells Zechariah that his prayer has been answered. And, you know, I think the first question we're going to ask of the test is what? <laughs> yeah. What prayer? What, what prayer has been answered? Um, on the surface, it would appear that Zechariah is at the altar of incense praying for a son. Uh, I, I don't believe that's what's happening. Uh, some commentaries will, will, will come to that conclusion. I, I don't believe for a nanosecond that's what's going on for several reasons. One is uh, to be chosen for this duty of priest to go into the temple during this administration would be the very pinnacle of one's career as a priest. This would happen once in a lifetime. This doesn't happen to everyone. I think there were like 18,000 priests approximately at this period of time. Uh, with that pool of, of men who are eligible to go in by way of the law of God during the Old Testament administration, your chances of getting in there aren't very big. And what is the duty of the priest when he goes to go in and offer personal prayers for himself? My heavens, no. His duty is to represent. Mind you, this is before the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The priest is kind of in this respect, a type of Christ, a type of mediator, if you will, standing between the people of God and God himself to go in there and begin rattling off prayers for for individual purposes for self purposes i don't see zechariah doing that it's been said that he is uh that he is a righteous man i don't believe he's in there praying for a son and furthermore zechariah is elderly and so is his wife now i don't have any doubt that they prayed for children i have no doubt about that zechariah and elizabeth undoubtedly prayed for children uh, to be barren during this time uh, is awful. And they prayed for children. But I can speak from personal experience. You offer these prayers and you offer these prayers and you offer these prayers and you reach a point where you begin to understand, OK, the answer is no. 
the answer is no. And you come to terms with that. And especially as you get older. And here uh, is uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They're way past the, 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 the period of being really on a natural level being able to produce children. So I don't think Zechariah and Elizabeth, I don't think Zechariah is in the holy of hol- in the most holy place, not the holy of holies, but the most holy place. I don't think he's in there offering prayers for a son. I think he's in there offering prayer for the redemption of Israel. But Gabriel tells Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Now, I think when we understand it this way, we see a wonder that we won't see any other way. And the wonder is this. Uh, God is about to do something that is an answer to the redemption of Israel, isn't it? But this is just like the character of God. Listen to this really carefully here. This is just like the character of God. When we pray, God hears us. We pray for things and we forget what we prayed for. And we move on and we pray for other stuff. And we forget what we prayed for. But God doesn't forget a single prayer. They're right there in his heart. He doesn't forget And it would be just like God, the magnificence of God's grace and God's benevolence to say, here, I got a two for one for you, Zechariah. I'm going to answer your prayer for the redemption of your people, for you and your people. But I'm going to do this by answering a long prayer that you and your wife used to pray long ago. I'm going to do this by giving you a son through this son. Can you can you feel the joy that 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 would encapsulate? It's just unbelievable. But see, this is the heart of our God. This is what our God is like. It's just so open. There's so much here. It wets your eyes with tears. What does Gabriel say? Gabriel says your prayer has been answered. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at the birth of your son. For he will be great before the Lord. And Jesus comments, you know, in in Luke chapter seven, Jesus comments on on John the Baptist, the son that Elizabeth and Zechariah will bear. And Jesus refers to him as the greatest, doesn't he? In fact, his words are, I tell you, among those born born of women, none is greater than John. Verse 16, Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, he says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You know, this implies something else about the religious state of affairs during this time. It's easy to miss, but Gabriel says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What is implied by that? It implies that they've turned their backs on God, doesn't it? I mean, you're not going to turn somebody to the Lord who's already facing the Lord, are you? And again, I mean, we look at our own day and we think to ourselves, boy, look, I mean, in this particular era, um, um, in this particular um, era, at this particular time, I mean, there's a lot of spiritual barrenness, you know, Um and we see that this, you know, this has been this has been done before. Uh, this has all happened before. 
growing pains. <laughs> we might even have it on the recording, I don't know. I could turn the, the mic. It's wonderful to have children. Having children crying in, on Sunday morning is a good thing. Many of the children of Israel have turned their back on God, but John is going to be the instrument to turn many of them toward him. Verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And this particular verse here, this utterance has massive implications, doesn't it? What is, what is Luke telling us? Well, if you're familiar with Malachi, and of course, even if you're not familiar with Malachi, we just read from Malachi just earlier in the service, uh, served as our call to worship, You'll recall from chapter four, verses five to six, these words, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, as a righteous priest, would Zechariah have known these words? Absolutely. Um, He would have known these words. And imagine Zechariah is in the holy place. This is the hallmark of his career as a priest and it's, his, it's the hallmark of his walk with God in this life. He's in the holy place offering incense for the Lord with the responsibility of praying for the people of God. And suddenly angel appears before him. Not just any angel, but Gabriel. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But Gabriel appears before him. And there's significance to the name Gabriel here. Um, And he says these words, and Zechariah would have understood that the fulfillment of Malachi is taking place right before his eyes. And try try to be Zechariah in 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 the temple here and processing all this. You're an old man. Now, we don't call Elizabeth old. We say she's advanced in years. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know, that's pretty nice, isn't it? Um, they're elderly. Gabriel is telling them that they're going to have a son. What? We've given up on that years ago. Oh, he's going to be, you know, you know he, the Bible wasn't. It, there was no versification of the Hebrew scriptures at that time. It wasn't like Gabriel could say, hey, you know, turn in your Bible to uh, uh, Malachi chapter 4 or Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 and Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. No, he quoted the passages from Malachi. And there Zechariah is hearing and seeing all of this take place right before his eyes. It is so hard to imagine the joy that would be taking place here. Uh, we all want children. We want our children to be successful. But this is out of the park, isn't it? Now, how does Zechariah respond to this? Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how should I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, unfortunately, Zechariah's response is one of unbelief, isn't it? And I mean, you see, there there is a powerful lesson here. I mean, you see, Zechariah is a man of, of piety. He's referred to in the scriptures as blameless. He's a believer, He's not an unbeliever. Guess what? He's he's in a moment of serious doubt here, isn't he? And we need to take stock of that. As as true true believers can experience doubt, and true believers do experience doubt. And don't let nobody tell you if you're experiencing doubt that you're not in Christ. 
we see right here that that is not necessarily the case. You know, Zechariah is capable of doubt, so are we. But secondly, Zechariah surely knew the story of Abraham, didn't he? I mean, that's like being a priest 101, isn't it? Like priest 101, you know, um, the story of Abraham. I mean, he's the father of the faithful. Surely we got the story of Abraham. You know, that's all the way back in Bible college. That's like the first semester of Bible college. We got Abraham and Abraham and Sarah are given children when they're they're very they're very old, aren't they? So Zechariah knew that God could do this. But, you know, so, as I read this text over and over again, sometimes I can't help but to think, and this is speculatory, this is conjecture on my point, but sometimes the good news is so good that we just find it hard to believe. Have you ever had that experience? I haven't had that experience in many years, but I have had that experience as I was processing the gospel. I mean, this news is so good that I could be chosen out of eternity past to to be a child of God, to to be the object of God's love, to be called to Jesus and to be given all of the um, all, all of the grace. I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens to other people. I'm not the guy that hits the lottery. I'm not the most popular guy in class. I, you know, I mean, if you look at my high school yearbook, there's this little dorky picture of me and that's it, you know, nothing else. I'm not the guy that does these things. This whole thing sounds too good to be true. And I can't help but think it at some capacity, Zechariah, and again, I'm conjecturing here, he, he, you know, if, if he was saying, this just sounds too good to be true, I mean, we can almost, we, can almost, uh, we, we certainly should be able to understand that. Um, how does Gabriel respond? Well, verse 19, he answers Zechariah, and he says, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. Um, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Well, many of you know the word angel. You know what it means, right? What's the word angel mean? It means messenger, right? Messenger. And God had sent Gabriel to proclaim a message. Gabriel is an angel with a message. And the message has the authority of the sender. And in this case, who is the sender? It is Almighty God. And as Gabriel proclaims this message, surely Zechariah is hearing Gabriel's voice, but he's also hearing someone else's voice. And whose voice is that? Almighty God. You know, uh, this little thing right here, you know, this little microphone thing, you know, it, it's it's right in front of me, and my, my voice is like vibrating a little diaphragm that's in here, and it's you know, it's charged with a small voltage and it sends this little signal that's just microvolts uh, to the to the uh, mixing board, it's amplified, it comes through the speaker. Um some of you can hear my voice without the assistance of that. Some of those of you in the back are probably hearing more of the speaker than my voice. But um, those of you in the back are, are actually, the, my message is being proclaimed really in a sense by the speaker, isn't it? 
I like to put it another way. You know, if I wrote you a letter, if I if I didn't stand here and, and preach this, but if I if I if I made like I don't know how many copies I'd need, but if I made copies of this message and I mailed it to all of you, when you got into the um, mailbox and you opened up um, this manuscript and you began to read it, who's speaking when you read it? Providing you understand it correctly, it's the medium upon which that's carrying my voice, is it not? There's a really important lesson here about preaching that, I mean, my own personal philosophy of ministry is this. It's real simple. It's real, real simple. I had to write a a number of papers on it um, when I was going through seminary and when I was going through the ordination exams, they want to know what my personal philosophy of ministry is and try to write a 25-page paper that basically says this. We don't need to hear from men. We need to hear from God. That's two sentences. You've got to expand that into 25 pages. Um, but it's that simple. Healing doesn't come from hearing from men. Healing doesn't come from the theories of men. Healing comes when we hear God's voice. You know, I was up very early this morning and what was I praying for? I was praying that you this morning you would hear not my voice, but God's voice. Yeah, you'll hear my voice, but do you not understand what I mean? And we got good reason to believe that you're you will hear God's voice because it's providing that I'm not botching this all up. And I'll leave you to be the judge as to whether I'm botching up this text or not. Providing I'm not botching up this letter that's in the mailbox here as it is read and proclaimed who actually is speaking. God is, isn't he? And that's why we we can come here and we can anticipate hearing from Almighty God. Not like a voice out of the sky. It'd be wonderful if we heard that. But no, it's an inner voice. God speaking from the text of Scripture, speaking to our inner person. That's why I get so irritated when I hear preachers doing, um, you know, instead of offering the Word of God on Sunday morning, if you want to see me get mad real quick, I get mad real quick about this. I get so irritated when I hear a pastor or preacher offering pop psychology from the pulpit on the Lord's Day morning or when he's offering theories about this or theories about that. We got a big book here to proclaim. None of us live long enough to proclaim every verse of this. And we're going to waste a Lord's Day with nonsense. We've got a wonderful message here to carry and it's our duty to carry it. And what irritates me so much is the people of God gather one day a week. We gather one day a week like this. Sure, I mean, we've got YouTube videos and, you know, messages are up on the Internet and you can listen to about anything you want about any time you want, but it isn't the same, is it? We've got to go seven more days before we get to do this again. And we're gonna, I'm going to stand here and give you a theory and deprive you of the food and nourishment that you need to deprive you of the voice, you see. That's a, a terrible thing. Boy, I could go on this in a long time. We better get back to old Zechariah. You remember Zechariah? 
He's in the temple. He's terrified. He's been comforted. He's been given news that is unbelievable. And he wants a sign. So Gabriel's going to give him a sign in verse 20. He says, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, Gabriel is given a sign that is both punitive and promissory. Punitive and promissory. You like that? Two Ps, huh? It's pretty cool, huh? Doesn't happen all that often. Punitive, meaning it's a punishment. Promissory, you think of the word promise. And this is God. You know, sometimes sometimes the... Um, We'll experience a, a rebuke and it won't be from God. It'll be from the evil one or the world or the flesh. Uh, there's no mercy in that rebuke. When you're experiencing a rebuke that has no mercy in it, it's not coming from God. If you study how God rebukes, there's always grace and mercy in his rebukes. And this is no, this is no exception. It's punitive in the fact that Zechariah is not going to be able to speak. And I, I don't know if you can imagine that. Suddenly you can't speak. Can't talk. Some of us can envision the workplace, so that being quite a blessing for everyone else. But um, think about it. You can't talk. You can't talk no more. Well, that's the punitive part. Where's the promissory part? Where's the blessing? Well, look, look again to Gabriel's words. He says, you will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Again, I'm reading between the lines, but we can almost imagine uh, Zechariah, okay, he's now unable to speak. This is my punishment, fair enough. But you know something? My day is coming. This is really happening. And one of these days soon, I'm not only going to be able to speak, but I'm going to be holding a son. I'm going to be holding him. We've wanted a son our, forever. And he's not just any son, but he's the fulfillment of Malachi. Chapter 3, chapter 4. Now, meanwhile, outside, the people realize that something's going on. Verse 21, they're wondering at the delay. Verse 22, when Zechariah comes out, he's unable to speak, and they realize he'd seen a vision. He's making signs to them. And of course, these signs are not only a sign for Zechariah, they're a sign for the covenant community. That would include us. What about Elizabeth? We haven't said much about Elizabeth, have we? What about Elizabeth? Boy, she's about to get a bomb dropped on her, isn't she? Huh? What about Elizabeth? She's about to receive the best news of her life. But, uh, but although, I, I mean, I would imagine the prospects of carrying a, a child in her golden years here. I mean, this is wonderful news, but it's not without uh, uh, some uniqueness, is it? <laughs> um, imagine this. I mean, think this through for a minute. Um, we're told, I mean, we, we, what's her reaction after these days? Elizabeth, she conceives, and for five months she keeps herself hidden. I, I don't know why she does that. I really don't. I can conjecture, but, I mean, your opinion is as good as mine. I don't know. Maybe it's like, what? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just wait here until it's very visible. <laughs> then, then I'll go out into the community. I don't know why she's keeping herself Hidden. We can ask her when we get to heaven. Uh, verse 25, she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. And notice what she says. To take away my reproach among the people. 
She had felt the shame and the humiliation and the scorn, the whispers and the gossip. She'd felt that for a long time. You know, when we're going through hard times, when we're going through bad times, it seems like this is everything there is. There's nothing else. Elizabeth lived a long time, a very long time. And through much of that time, she endured the shame and the humiliation of this. But you know what? In the grand schemes of the big picture, it wasn't that long at all, was it? And we need to always remember, don't think that the current circumstances that we're in right now is the sum total of it all. Because it's not. It never is. We look to God. She endured humiliation and shame for decades, but now she has been liberated and she has a son. Let's put this all together here. Let's look up to, I mean, a lot of times, um, and I read a couple of messages this week that really right about now is where this thing would be wrapped up and closed in prayer. And I kind of, I mean, you've got all these little caveats, don't you? You've got all these like little mini lessons that take place through the text, you know? And there's many more that I didn't even mention. I didn't even mention what true greatness is, you know? What kind of span it on that? I mean, uh, here's John and he's going to be great before the Lord. And there would be a wonderful message right there. It's what does greatness before the Lord look like? And we could learn from there, couldn't we? I, I didn't get into the subject of the so-called why does bad things happen to good people? You know, that's a whole nother topic, you know, and there's the, the question itself is problematic. Uh, uh, I didn't go into that. Um, if someone asked me to speak on that subject, I, I would probably come to Luke chapter one to speak on that subject. This is a classic example right here. Uh, all of these things that we see here, uh, doctrine of scripture, uh, all of these things that we see here, uh, they're, they're in the text. But here's the question that I have. Is this Luke's primary purpose to give us all these little mini lessons on life? We get these lessons, fair enough. But if I preached and wrapped things up right now, will I have really preached Luke's message here? No. No. I don't think this is Luke's purpose. What is Luke's purpose? To, to answer that question, what do we look at? We look at context, right? And here we need to look at a greater context than Luke. Uh, we need to look at the context of Luke. We'll start with that. But we also need to look at the context of how Luke sits in the grand scheme of things and God's unfolding plan of redemption, if you will. How does Luke's message fit in that? As we begin to look at that, we suddenly see what Luke is up to. Um, uh, the, the, the context here, if you look back to verse four, which we didn't even read, we are told that, you know, we see Luke's purpose in writing. He's writing that uh, Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. Now, of course, through Theophilus, I mean, uh, obviously, everyone who reads Luke is going to get that same purpose. Uh, we could say that Luke is writing that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. So it's important to Luke that we have certainty concerning these things. And if we look back even further to verse three, Luke is setting out to write an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished. An orderly account of the things that have been accomplished. Okay, where does Luke begin? He begins with John the Baptist. Namely, he begins with the birth narrative 
of John the Baptist, but even more specifically, he's showing us what God is doing. What is God doing? God has chosen a time. God has chosen a place. God has chosen a family. God has chosen a son, John the Baptist, to be the instrument of turning the hearts of his children back to him. And furthermore, we see that this is in the fulfillment of what God has promised to do. And he made these promises through Malachi. Now, some of you may be wondering why I haven't said this. So I'm going to say it now in case someone is wondering why I haven't said this. When you read the last verses of Malachi chapter 4, you, you're reading the last verses of the Old Testament, right? That's the end of the Old Testament. And, you know, if you just turn there for a second, just flip back a little bit and turn there. Turn to page 803 in the Pew Bible. And there you see Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. You just turn there, you know. Now, turn the page. And what do you see? In the Pew Bible, you see the words, the New Testament. You turn the page again. What do you see? The Gospel according to Matthew. Now, it's easy just to flip these pages, isn't it? But over 400 years has taken place in the time span between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, and Malachi chapter 4. 400 years have taken place. God made these tremendous promises in Malachi. And then he went completely silent for 400 years. And what is Luke showing us? God has broken his silence. And he has come to make good on his promises. And what a tremendous message that is for the people of God. Because sometimes he seems silent, doesn't he? Where are you, God? Where are you? Do you realize what's going on? Do you realize what's happening to me? Do you realize what's happening to your church? Do you realize what's happening to my kids? Where are you? He's near, isn't he? Don't ever forget, he's right there. Sometimes he's silent. But that silence breaks and thunder rolls, doesn't it? That's what Luke's up to. What an encouragement that is to us. Amen? Heavenly Father, oh, with tears in both of our eyes, Father, we look to you in just sheer amazement of the things that you do. Things that you would do for the likelihood of us, Father. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you should glorify him? And just set us just a little below the angels and give us such a great redemption. 
Father, this morning we hear the cloud, we see the clouds part and we hear the thunder roll and there's an announcement of a son. And he would be forerunner, forerunner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us to come to grips with the true message that has been proclaimed here, Father, so many years ago that is so familiar to us, Father, but I fear we miss it so much of the time. Help us to eternalize it, Father, in such a way that it's transforming to us, that it finds us praising you in a new way, praising you from a new perspective, praising you from a new angle, Father. Our hearts truly are filled with joy, joy that fills our eyes with tears, that you would look on us with such love and mercy. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.